As we go about our lives, we cannot help but make predictions about the future. That the sun will rise tomorrow, that summer will follow spring, and that the England football team will not win the European Cup. All of these beliefs are based on an assumption that the past provides an accurate guide for the future. But what is the justification for this assumption? Why do we take ourselves to know things about the world that we have never experienced? I'm Rob, and with me to discuss the problem of induction is professional conundrum Edward Fraser. You're listening to The Thirst. Sit back, relax, and take your shoes off. Tonight, wisdom's on the house. Thanks, Rob, for that wonderful introduction. Um, Yeah, as you said, we're going to be discussing uh, the problem of induction, which was most famously uh, introduced in modern philosophy by Scottish philosopher David Hume in his inquiry concerning human understanding. Um, The discussion commenced in section four with a vital distinction which has endured in philosophy and science to date, albeit in a slightly different form. And the distinction is between two types of human knowledge, relations of ideas and matters of fact. Now, by relations of ideas, Hume has in mind the type of knowledge that can be categorised as arising out of pure conceptual thought. So relations of ideas are things like statements of logic that are necessarily true by virtue of their meaning. So consider, for example, all bachelors are unmarried men. In this case, uh, there's a collection of ideas, bachelors, unmarried, uh, and one can tell simply by looking at the relations between them that it is true and must be true uh, that all bachelors are unmarried men. Now, we know that all bachelors are unmarried men because it would be a contradiction in terms to have a married bachelor. Um, The modern sort of term for this kind of truth is analytic truth. Um, By matter of fact, Hume has in mind the type of knowledge that can be characterizes arising out of one's experience uh, in the external world. So matters of fact are things that we cannot know to be true or false simply by consulting uh, the relations between ideas. We need additional evidence. So, for example, um, the claim that the sun will rise tomorrow or that all swans are white. Um, In this case, there's nothing about the idea swan or white that means that it would be a contradiction to say that some swans are black or even that all swans are black. It's not a matter of logic that swans must be white, but through experience we learn that, as a matter of fact, they are. And the modern term for that sort of truth is a synthetic truth. So the crucial difference is that relations of ideas are true in virtue of their meaning, but matters of fact are true because of the way the world happens to be. Okay, I think I see where you're coming from, but if you'd just like to explain it just from a slightly different angle, because, you know, you're dealing with me here, it's not some pumped-up genius, it's a low-life amoeba. True, true. Um... Okay, well, let's think of it the opposite way around. So, according to Hume, human knowledge is either learnt through experience or else it is something we obtain through reason. So, the the one you learn through experience is the matter of fact. Like, you can't know that those two statements are true unless you've experienced it in real life for yourself. That's right. With the matter of fact, there's, there's nothing... If you understood the terms, you still wouldn't know whether it was true or not. So you if you something more. Exactly. So if you understood the term swan and you understood the term white, there'd be nothing in the statement all swans are white that you could immediately know was true or false. You'd have to actually go out and look at swans. Um, whereas the relations of ideas, if you understand bachelor and unmarried, then you know instantly that all bachelors are unmarried men is true. Yeah, exactly. You've so got you just it. need to you need to know the terms and understand the terms for the first one. Yeah. But For the second one, you need that little bit more. You need some additional evidence, exactly. Now, this feeds on rather nicely to 
the point of the distinction, Hume's point. Relations of ideas are all well and good, but they're not very informative about the world around us. And it seems that most, if not all, of our knowledge about the world around us is matter of fact. So some matters of fact you can know by virtue of the fact that you perceive them or you remember perceiving them. Right. So I, I think we're just going to have to assume that for now because as we'll find out in later <laughs> episodes, you can doubt even those things that you know by virtue of perceiving them. I'll look forward to that. It's like GCSE science. You think you know something, but then when you pop onto A-level, your mind's just blown again. Yeah, it, it's sort of like that. Although I think they probably build you up with science. So when you, <laughs> when you leave it, you think you know something at least. Whereas with philosophy, they strip everything away from you and leave you naked <laughs> in a corner like a quivering child. Which is what we're trying to do. But anyway, uh, Rob, back to the point, um, if only for a little while. Uh, As I said, um, some matters of fact we can know by virtue of the fact that we perceive them or can remember perceiving them. But this is going to work out to be quite a limited selection of things. So what about those matters of fact we take ourselves to know but but we do not perceive or remember? So what about our belief that the sun will rise tomorrow? How can we come to know that? They love snooker tables in philosophy, so we might as well have that as an example. Well, they're all pipe-smoking gentry, aren't they? They are. They spend a lot of the time in the billiards room. Yeah, well, with snooker skills like yours, Rob, I can see why you haven't been invited into the select circle. Fair days, fair days. Um, But leaving that to one side for one minute. Um, Okay, imagine you're playing snooker and you see a white ball moving towards a red one. It must have been... My shot, not yours, otherwise the white will be moving away from red one. straight into the pocket. Yeah, exactly. But we see a white snooker ball moving towards a red one. You would suppose that when the white ball hits the red ball, the red ball will move. Now, this is not a relation of ideas. There's nothing about snooker balls and motion that says that the red ball must move when the white ball hits it. And it hasn't happened yet. So you can't be perceiving it and you can't remember it. So what grounds do you have for supposing it'll happen at all? Now, Hume argues that the only way you can know anything about a matter of fact that you don't perceive or remember is by drawing an inference from experience of causal relations. I mean, you can illustrate this point quite easily. So imagine a freshly created Adam who's no experience at all to call upon. Imagine he's just been placed in the garden and God's given him a snooker table because, you know, you've got to amuse your brothers, haven't you? You've got to be nice to your creations, benevolence and all that. Um, My question to you is, would... Adam be able to predict what would happen when the white ball hits the red ball. Well, not from what you've just told me, because he has no past experience to, to draw on. So as the white ball moves towards the red ball and then hits it, there's nothing to say that the red ball couldn't just disappear yep. or, you know, fly off into space. Oh, it's lovely. It's lovely just to see the blank piece of paper that is your mind yeah. and then just see my drawing etched upon it. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. This is why I do it. It's a lovely feeling. Um, so, yeah, according to Hume... Adam would not be able to predict what would happen when the white ball hit the red ball. And as you just pointed out, this is because without past experience, we can't make any predictions about the future at all. And this is an important point because any inference we make about matters of fact that we have neither perceived nor remembered will be based on our experience of causality. And this learning from experience takes for granted that past experiences will provide some sort of guide about what will happen in the future. So... It's not useful for us when we're making predictions um, that A caused B in the past if it's not going to continue to do so in the future. And Hume calls this the principle of uniformity of nature, 
which was a foundational tenant of Newtonian physics at the time. Okay, so we've defined a couple of terms, mm. and I think I've displayed my knowledge admirably, so I'm therefore worthy of a gold star. I don't dispense gold stars that readily, Rob, you know that. Well, fa- fair enough. Um, but what is the problem with induction then, Ed? We've skirted around the issue. I, I have skirted around the issue, um, and I've been avoiding it thus far because Hume doesn't use the word induction himself, and I wanted to set up the problem in his terms. Um so yeah, Hume doesn't use the word induction, but it's quite clear that what we now call inductive reasoning is the method that he attacks in his inquiry. Uh, well, I don't really want to soil the water any further here. Um, I feel it's fairly murky as it is. So, <laughs> so let's just say that induction is the method of reasoning we've been describing thus far with regards to matters of fact. Um, and induction is often contrasted with deduction, which for our purposes we can say is the method of reasoning used with relations of ideas. Is that the one that Sherlock Holmes uses? It's the deduction is what Sherlock Holmes thinks he uses and induction is thinks what... Thinks he uses? Yeah, induction <laughs> is what he actually uses. You're crossing the big man. I, I'm crossing the big man. Um, or rather, I'm crossing the big man's author, to be fair. I'm not sure if Sherlock... Does Sherlock describe it? his method as deductive or is it described... You've read them, haven't you? I, haven't. I have read them, yeah. I don't know if he actually describes it as deductive thinking. Well, I don't want to pick a fight with a fictional character because I fear, <laughs> I fear that's a fight I either can't win or can't lose, depending on how seriously you take Sherlock Holmes. But the point is, I'll explain the difference between deduction and induction, and then you'll see that Sherlock Holmes actually uses induction. Open my eyes, then. I'm going to open your eyes as ever, Rob. Um, okay, so let's start with deduction. As an example of deduction, consider the following argument. All bachelors are unmarried men. Rob is a bachelor, therefore Rob is an unmarried man. Um, In this kind of argument, the premises can't be true without the conclusion also being true. So, in other words, if all bachelors are unmarried men and Rob is a bachelor, then he must be an unmarried man. Yeah, you don't have to take any leaps of faith there, do you? The the answer's already straight in front of you. Yeah, that's exactly right. The information we get at the end of a deductive argument is already contained within the premises. Um, We learn nothing new. Now, that's all well and good for, for statements of logic, but in everyday life and in the sciences, we want to learn something new. Um, more specifically, we want to extend the range of what we know beyond the things that we have already experienced. So, for example, we know that the sun has risen every day since history remembers, and therefore we take ourselves to have safe grounds to claim that it will rise again tomorrow. This move from experience to unexperienced matter of fact is called inductive inference, or simply just induction. Um, now, it seems clear to me that that is exactly what Sherlock Holmes does. Yeah, now you put it in those terms, it seems yeah. quite yeah. obvious that he uses induction rather than deduction, deduction yeah. to reach his conclusions. He uses what they what we call in philosophy um, inference the best explanation. He basically has a little glance up and down, a sly, a sly <laughs> look at you. Sees a bit of chalk on your you know left boot and then... It induces. Induces. Thank you. From, from that, that you've been out somewhere snorting chalk. <laughs> Um, but anyway, back, back, to, back to induction here. Um, the way I've been talking about induction has been using inductive inferences from the past to the future. But it's important to realise that induction includes any instance of inference from experienced to unexperienced matter of fact, be they past, present or future. So this one example we mentioned is a case in point. Um, we take ourselves to be justified in the claim that all swans are white, even though we can't have seen all the swans in the world the flow so induction is the move from experience to unexperienced matters of fact and the problem of induction is that the move from experience to unexperienced 
matter of fact, doesn't look as though it can be rationally justified. So what do I mean by that? Well, we mentioned just now that induction requires that we can learn from the past, i.e. that nature is uniform. So if A causes B today, A will cause B tomorrow. Hume's point is that there's no way to rationally justify our faith in the principle of uniformity of nature. So consider once more the difference between relations of ideas and matters of fact. I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself here, but I can no, see from your glazed expression that some, some of it's going in, but some of it's certainly not. You, you perked up with when we mentioned Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, well. But you faded away into insignificance again, so I need to bring you back to the light. So apologies to all the listeners out there who are faster than Rob. Um, <laughs> but, but we're just going to go over it one more time. So consider once more the difference between relations of ideas and matters of fact. Relations of ideas are necessarily true. So we know that an unmarried bachelor will never be born because such a thing is clearly impossible as soon as you understand the terms. But what about matters of fact? What about a black swan? Would that be impossible? Well, the answer to that question is obvious if you think about it like this. If a black swan were born tomorrow, would we have to revise our ideas about the terms black or swan? It seems to me that we wouldn't. Rob? No, I'd second that. Excellent. We agreed. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> I think we'd probably be taken aback slightly when we saw a black swan. I, I probably would, but I I've don't seen, think... I've it... seen a black swan, though, but yeah. I assume they're different species. Let's not, let's, let, <laughs> I, I'd rather you hadn't said that, honestly, Rob, because you've just completely undermined. But why did you wait 20 minutes to bring this in? I've been using this white swan example. Oh, good. It's fine, we can cut that, carry on. Oh, no, it's, it's great. We'll keep it, let's keep it. But uh, anyway, we don't cut. Slam me down. Slam me down. It's live. Um, I'm not even going to touch that. We're going to assume that it didn't happen. Let's call it a different species. That's fine. You've, you've provided the problem, you provided the answer. That's great. Um, all right, so... Let's revise the black swan, white swan example in light of the new knowledge that you've provided me with, <laughs> touching on the fact that there is such a thing as a black swan. Um, would you grant me that all swans of a particular species that we have observed thus far are white? Yes, I'll give you that. Thank you. Let's, let's call it species W for white. My question to you would be, what happens if... Uh, swan from the species W. All the members we've observed thus far of them have been white. What happens if a swan of the species W is born black tomorrow? Would that be a logical contradiction? No. Well, bearing this in mind, um, Hume asks, if there's no logical reason to say that the past must resemble the future, what grounds do we have for supposing that it would at all? Or more generally, what grounds do we have for supposing that what we have experienced would be like anything like what we have not experienced? Well, Hume answers, we have no grounds at all. The fact that the sun has always risen before simply gives us no reason to suppose that it will ever rise again. We have no rational grounds for our faith in the principle of the uniformity of nature. But if it isn't rational, then where does this belief come from? Why do we think that the sun will rise tomorrow? Why do we think that nature is uniform? Well, Hume says, our conviction that the past will resemble the future is nothing more than the result of pure animal instinct. Whoa, whoa, steady Eddie. Isn't it safe to assume, though, if the sun has risen since the beginning of time, that it will, you know, rise again tomorrow? Oh, no. Rob, I was worried. Have I made a blunder? Well, in a way, I'm, I'm happy. Um, the response you've just made is what philosophers call the naive response. Great. Perhaps so they can congratulate themselves on their piercing intellects. <laughs> um, I think I'm right in suggesting what you're trying to say goes as follows. The inductive method is justified because it's been proven correct in the past. So we can say that the sun will rise tomorrow on the grounds that it rose yesterday because each time 
we have made that claim in the past it's been true so what you're telling me even though the sun has risen from the beginning of time it's not logical to assume that it's going to rise tomorrow that's exactly what I'm telling you, Rob. You're flailing, I find like, you're <laughs> flailing like magic up here. It's, it's endearing to see. Um, okay, let, let me try and let me let me try and rephrase this here. Uh, essentially, the reasoning you're using is circular. So, the naive response says something like this: We are justified in believing that the past will resemble the future because we know from experience that past pasts have always resembled past futures. The problem with this response is that response is arguing that we can inductively reason from past to future because the past has always resembled the future is to presume that the past will continue to resemble the future which exact is exactly what induction does in the first place in other words the naive response to the problem of induction is inductive and this gets us nowhere now hume's concern is that it's perfectly possible that at some point the past will no longer be a reliable guide for the future if this is the case then past experience will be no of no use in making predictions about the future importantly this includes our past experience, that past past resembled past futures. So so what I've basically done, I've stumbled blindly into another hot mess. Yeah, you have. <laughs> you've, you've, you've landed us in the mire once more. Have I lost my gold star, Ed? That's the burning question. I told you before, Rob, that in philosophy you don't earn gold stars, you earn legacies. Uh, can you now see the scale of the problem, Rob? Well, I feel like a lost little boy. Basically, induction is pulling the rug out from underneath science and everything I believe in is now null and void. Rob, don't worry, take my hand and I'll, I'll take <laughs> you towards the light once more. But um, you're right, it is a catastrophic issue. I, I read somewhere that the problem of induction was described as intellectual terrorism, <laughs> which I thought was quite good. It's good. Um, so yeah, basically the scale of the problem. You can't even say that it's probable that the sun will rise tomorrow on the basis of our repeated observations of it rising in the past, because as we've seen, the past can't be shown to provide any guide whatsoever for the future. So when making our future predictions, we would be just as justified if we flipped a coin than if we reasoned inductively. So it should be clear by now that humans called into question just about all of the claims we make about the world <laughs> in everyday life. But the problem goes further than that, obviously. Oh, it doesn't just call into question the status of our beliefs. It also undermines the very method by which we come to hold them. So, as you said with science, all of the conjectures we make about the world around us are based on an assumption about the uniformity of nature we have no rational basis to make. Yeah. And, and as, you've, as you've hinted, the problem is that it looks as though scientific reasoning fundamentally functions <laughs> along inductive lines. So if such a method is shown to be irrational, then what does that mean for the practice of science? Thus we arrive at the meat of today's discussion. If scientific practice can't be rationally justified but is based on nothing more than what humans called animal instinct, then what reason do we have to favour it over religion or superstition? After all, we have superstitious instincts too. What a mess. As you pointed <laughs> out, where can we go from here? Fear not, Rob. Um, we've got a few thousand years of philosophical thought on our side here to draw on. Um, there's two obvious ways to respond to defend science against the problem of induction. The first would be to defend inductive reasoning so that we can be justified in inferring from the past or the future from what we haven't experienced, from what we have experienced, sorry, to what we haven't. And the second way is to say that in actual fact, science doesn't need induction. It doesn't work inductively. That sounds like a bold claim <laughs> it, to it me. It is a bold claim, but let, let's, let's deal with that first. Let's knock that one on the head. Um, it is Karl Popper's theory, and he wrote in his book, Inductive Knowledge, and I quote, I may be mistaken, but I think I've solved the problem of induction. End <laughs> that quote. Referring to anything in philosophy, saying that you've solved it. Yeah. 
it, yeah. it's quite a bold claim. Well, basically, Popper's theory was uh, he, he was so troubled by Hume's problem of induction that he set about constructing a scientific practice that did not rely in any way on inductive reasoning. So he interprets the problem of induction as going as follows. Past experience can't justify attributing truth to a scientific theory that involves future predictions. And he accepts that this is the case. But, he says, a scientific theory involving future predictions can still be falsified by past or present observations. And this, he argues, is what scientists should be doing with their time. Um, to make that a bit clearer, it, it's been assumed, or we've assumed so far, that the role of science is to move from experienced uh, particulars to prove a general claim. So from the experience, the observation of various white swans of a particular yeah. species W to the general claim that all swans of this particular species W are white. Popper accepts the problem of induction. He says that that move is false, is not justified. But he argues that we can still deductively disprove scientific theories. Uh, for example, we could disprove the theory that all swans of a particular class W were white with the observation of a black swan. So Popper's whole theory is called falsificationism. It strives for questioning and for falsification of hypotheses instead of proving them. Well, Popper's method seems all very well and good, but all it seems to do is disprove hypotheses and not prove them, and it doesn't really seem very beneficial in advancing mankind scientifically or otherwise. <laughs> I think I think that 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 ha that challenge has been raised <laughs> at him in the past. I think it's a bit harsh because that is sometimes how science functions. Scientists do try to test edge cases rather than basic cases to try and see if their theories are right or wrong. But yeah, sure, sure. I mean, if you have multiple hypotheses, you obviously need to disprove some, but then at the end of that, you need to prove the other, which well, Popper's method doesn't seem to do very effectively. You've actually, that's very good because you've stumbled across the exact problem. If all we can do is go by the theories that we haven't falsified yet, how do we choose between them? Mm. And it seems that whatever Popper calls the method we might choose between them is going to have to be something like induction. So even if Popper's right, we won't be able to disprove all the competing theorems for, for, for any given... Um, scientific idea. So how do we choose between them if falsification is all we can do? As you've rightly said, Popper can't prove anything and he doesn't want to. He doesn't think science can prove anything at all. So how do we possibly choose between them? And Popper does have various terminology. Um, but I don't really buy it, to be honest with you. I think, <laughs> I think you'd have to sneak induction in the back door and say, fair enough, we've falsified X, Y, and Z. We should choose whichever one has more predictive power, whichever one yeah. is more inductively persuasive. Um, to be fair, we have just laid the smack down and <laughs> haven't really given him a chance to defend himself, but it is a fascinating topic. Um, and there's a very good Radio 4 podcast by Melvin Bragg and, and, and co. And In Our Time on uh, Karl Popper, which you should listen to if you're thirsty for more, which I know you will be. Um, but in the interest of time, producer James is waving at me, so I think we should move on okay so we haven't managed to strip the inductive method from science very well at all yeah i'm not convinced with that one no that's What's fair next? enough that's fair enough the other response to the problem is to try and justify induction via some sort of route um and this was hume's answer to the problem um once again a great man sets up the issue <laughs> 
deals with it. Don't worry about it. Um, you might not know that Hume was actually more famous for his history. No, I had no idea. No, that's because he's so busy saving the world in philosophy that you wouldn't know that. But <laughs> at the time, the great polymath was actually a historian as well. Um, but back to the point. Hume's answer to his own problem is to favour consistency. So, he says everything we do in life is based on the assumption that we can learn from experience, i.e. that the yeah. future resemble the past. And his point is that even the superstitious man has to make this assumption. So, in that case, the rational thing to do is accept that this assumption about nature is something we can't do without. And if we have to assume it, then why not make it the model? This gives a reliable basis for preferring science as a method of learning truths about the world. So what then is the role of science, um, if Hume's right about induction? Well, it looks like we can't know that any of our theories about the world are correct, at least those theories involving future predictions because we can't know if the past will resemble the future. Hume's response reduces science to the kind of project Newton undertook with gravitation, where he basically looked at Galileo's findings and fiddled with the maths until mm. things fit together. So the idea would be that the role of science is to strip everything down to a few basic principles, which we can know nothing about and we just have to accept. Now this suggestion might not be everybody's cup of tea, but in quantum mechanics today it's actually where we are. That is to say... It looks as though the ultimate principles of nature are ones that we can't hope to understand. Well, thanks for presenting those two arguments, Ed. But I was initially really worried about induction because basically you have to accept that inductive reasoning is an inescapable way of thinking mm. for science to function. Yeah, it looks to be that way to me, certainly. And um, Popper's argument didn't really impress me because <laughs> I no, no disrespect. He's a great man. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he was. But um He had a weighty intellect, Rob, but I can I can see your, your point. It it seems to us at least that induction is an inescapable way of thinking. If science is to function or if we're to function in everyday life, we need to be making predictions about the future. Exactly. For us to advance as a species, inductive reasoning isn't really that bad. I mean, if you asked any scientist in the world, they wouldn't say, Yes, we know everything. Probably they would say our best theories at the time would describe that. So you're satisfied, what you're saying to me is you're, you at once acknowledge the weight of the problem of induction. But Well, I'm far from satisfied because basically what Hume says is that scientists will never understand everything, which might sound a bit controversial. However, scientists have never really claimed to know everything. No, I think that might be surprising to some of our listeners, but hmm. as arrogant as some scientists seem, they're actually quite humble up close if you survey them in their natural habitat so that's what i'm told anyway <laughs> i wouldn't know us philosophers us philosophers are anything but humble so i, mm. I don't know ed after all of that weighty conversation i'd like to know your final thoughts so turning it over to me yeah uh... um well i think the first thing i want to say is just thank you well we both want to say all three of us want to say yeah thank you very much thank you all for the positive feedback we received about last week's episode it was really great to hear from you um Having said that, a theme emerged uh, that the discussion Rob and I had was pointless because whatever we established in this sacred room, you would continue to believe the opposite anyway. <laughs> so, in other words, even though it looks as though, on the basis of some of your comments, that we may have convinced some of you that you were not free to do X in as much as you could have chosen to do Y, you said that in everyday life, you would continue believing that you had that manner of freedom anyway. So, what was the point in us debating it? And I think that the problem of induction perfectly demonstrates the point of philosophical debate, or any debate for that matter. So when Hume first published his inquiry in 1748, I'd imagine there was probably some uproar in the scientific community. 
And it's a mark of the progress in human understanding that we now take his findings to be correct. As yeah, well. I read somewhere that um, when Hume presented his findings or wrote his book, um, some abbots in Edinburgh went absolutely mental. <laughs> they did kick off. Essentially, yeah. they, they were a bit worried that it was a little too atheistic, <laughs> yeah. um, which in hindsight it probably was. And they got rid of him from the university or wherever he was. I think uh, they wouldn't. I think it was at Edinburgh. I'm yeah. not sure they got rid of him or whether they wouldn't let him come. Um, yeah, that sounds more like. I it, think actually. he was going to be the lecturer in moral philosophy there. Yeah, that's exactly and they wouldn't right. let him do it. That's exactly right. Um, but anyway, the point is the development that that has been made that we've made now in science. So we now take induction, like we said, to be a vital part of scientific reasoning. That sort of development doesn't come without discussion and debate, even if at the time it looks as though that debate was meaningless. I think it is the job of philosophers to challenge our everyday beliefs and subject them to an absurd amount of scrutiny so that they might be refined and improved. And obviously sometimes this leads to the overturning of a traditional point of view. Well, people don't like their assumptions about the world to be challenged, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be. So I guess my final thought on the matter is that it's people who are the problem here, not philosophy. <laughs> well, thank you, Ed, for again leading me out of the darkness and into the light. That's all right, Rob. I'm sure the listeners feel the same way. Illuminated. Yeah, it looks like you're glowing, Rob, I'm honest with you. It almost looks as if you've evolved into a fairly nice Garados. <laughs> Thanks, Ed. Um, well, the issue we'll be discussing next week is whether or not there is a distinction between mind and body. So look forward to that one. Sounds good. Um, if you enjoyed this one, then please get in touch with us. Uh, there's various methods. We're on everything now. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Um, you can visit us our website, www.thethirstpodcast.com or you can email us at thethirstpodcast at gmail.com. Ah, oh, there's another one, isn't there? iTunes. Uh, iTunes! <laughs> so, no biggie. No, don't worry about it. It's um, only the most important one of the lot. So, as I said, like, comment, subscribe, download. Everything. Go mental. Everything. Spread the love. And uh, we'll see you next time. In the meantime, stay thirsty, everyone. I always do. Yeah.